Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. Almost every writer I know resists the outlining process. It's the least fun part of writing and everyone just wants to dive into the pages. However, my guest today asserts that the process of outlining brings the story from our imagination into our conscious mind. It makes it an executable thing that we can make and see in the world rather than just a notion. So how does the brain work where creativity is involved? Chemistry professor and screenwriter Meg Gifford finds that scientists who merge their left and right brain prowess have breakthroughs faster. We're visited by Nagi Cox from JPL NASA who agrees. But there's still so much we don't know. We'll talk about the collective unconscious, the powerful drive of personal doubt, and what she's learned from the 22 Oscar-winning screenwriters whose interviews she edited for Lou Hunter's upcoming book, Naked Screenwriting. So we have the UCLA connection, which is kind of like what brought us together in the first place. But I wanted to start because you have, like you are this interesting dichotomy of a person, your left brain and right brain, your science and creativity, which I think is really cool. Yeah, you know, I naturally, I think, even in when I was in grade school was writing. So science came later. And it wasn't until I took a particular class that it really like hooked me. Yeah. So I never thought I'd be a science person, to be honest. That's awesome. Like, <laughs> so... We talk, I've talked to a lot of guests about like what were their childhoods like, what were their parental expectations. But since you're a chemistry professor, right? Like you, you, so you, you know, you fulfilled that parental, like have a real job obligation that we all have. You know, my dad did always say, it's very interesting. He did always say, make writing a hobby because he knew I was always doing it. And he would say, you need to major in engineering or science and make writing a hobby. And it's really interesting because now that he's retired, he's like, you really need to take a year or two off and just focus on writing. I don't know why you're spending this time with chemistry. (laughs) So they switch. That's amazing. (laughs) Why do you think that is? Um, I think that he was really worried. I think when parents are, you know, when they have these kids, they're really worried. How are they going to support themselves in this world? Um, are they going to live with me forever? How do I get them out? And so they push you into directions that they know you can find a job in. Like right now, healthcare jobs are exploding because everyone sure. can find a job in it, especially, you know, as unemployment goes up, people are just like going into healthcare like crazy. So I think they really want stability, but then they continue to watch your life and they're like, Hmm, what brought my kid happiness? Maybe it wasn't this that I pushed them into. Mm. I was wondering if it was one of those, like, he had some sort of big life shift and was like, oh my gosh, enjoying life is what's important. I want Meg to enjoy life. I mean, a little bit. He did mellow a lot when he retired because he was always like, go, 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 go. He like was a 16 yeah. hour workday kind of person. Sounds like my And dad. so, yeah, he was always like very, very driven. And I think he just like, once he relaxed, he was like, oh, actually, I'm not sure what all this was for. All this work was mm. for. Yeah. I feel, I feel having creative pursuits gives your life more purpose. It does. And it might not just be, it's, I think it's doing what you should be doing. Like I was thinking that everyone has one thing. They say, you know what it is when you're six years old and you shouldn't ignore that six year old voice, but everyone has one thing that they should be doing. And if they're not doing it, then they're not happy. Mm. So for you, that was writing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was telling stories. Telling stories. But I was good at telling some whoppers. (laughs) (laughs) Give me an example. Did did you tell one that that you were surprised you got away with? Or something Um, that got you in trouble? My parents knew that I was telling whoppers because they were so out there. I mean, even when I was three, they would say, were you behind the house? You know, like, were you, because we lived on an acreage. And they would say, were you out in the boysenberry orchard? And I was like, No. Why would you think that? And then I'd make up this whole long story about what really happened, but I had purple feet. So it was so <laughs> obvious that I was in the boysenberry orchard. <laughs> That's amazing. I think there's been, I haven't read enough about this, but I know there's been studies on like kids that figure out how to lie really early and that it's actually like this sign of creativity and not like, oh, your kid is bad. It's actually. Well, she's a, a psychologist. <laughs> Tongue in front of 
podcast. And that's what he said. He's like, she's very creative. Push her into something creative. <laughs> so, so what was it about chemistry then that felt like, okay, here's a path. Okay. Well, surprisingly, organic chemistry was my specialty and organic chemistry is really creative. So it's drawing. So kids who oh. like drawing tend to like organic. It really shocked me. I didn't think that organic would be my, my specialty in graduate school either. So, um, but it's all drawing molecules. It's very much like just, it's art in a way. And until you get to like organic chemistry, you don't realize that. Yeah. Also as a professor, I can see kids who have merged creativity and science. They are more likely to make a breakthrough in science. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, the kids who just kind of like rotely follow the rules, they'll be a good scientist, but they're not likely to make a breakthrough. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you can see that when we've had great intuitive leaps in any field, it's been usually a mind that is, you know, like Da Vinci or somebody who's very science and very creative. It's like, those are the people that yeah. make these leaps. And somebody told me, I didn't check this, but somebody told me that NASA has even started bringing in artists to solve problems that their engineers can't, aren't able to solve. Well, that's fascinating. We actually have someone on right now who could tell us. Oh. Nikki, Nikki says that, Nikki works for NASA. She says that is true. Oh. <laughs> that's amazing. So it is absolutely true that we still, that we have artists, we have historians. Um, and lately we've been hiring more UI designers um, because they have, a different skill set, right? And so, yeah, there are, yeah. And I think it's long overdue. We've always had folks who are kind of um, animators and who make the videos, but now we actually have more artists in residence um, and, and just people whose skill set is in the <clears throat> visualization. Are, do you see that kind of like those people that have both of those minds or creative minds bringing into sciences making? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's always, it always takes a village, right? It always takes a village. And the idea that it's scientists and engineers who can cover the whole span has just never been true. And now, as opposed to it being people who are engineers and scientists first and have another set of skills the way Meg does, it's actively going out and seeking the people whose background is in those areas. Fascinating. Well, thank you for that. Do um, you think, I think that everyone has both skills, but that we're kind of pushed into one area and we should actually be encouraged to develop both. Let me turn off the fan so you can hear better. I, I think that is also shown interestingly by, I work at, at JPL up in Pasadena. And um, one of the things that we talk about is how people have different sets, how, how almost everybody has like a second area that they use to take their mind off the work. And so we have like, a world champion origami expert. Mm -hmm. We have composers. We have authors. We have, yeah, so, and, and a frequent one is we have a lot of theater folks who are, who are, who kind of are, you know, that's their quote hobby. Um, but I, I've always said that one of the things that I find interesting is the extent to which people in my environment have very strong second interests, right? And mm. how they tend to be the other half of the brain. Yeah. So I yeah, it. I really think every human has both sides, but mm. that we kind of get put into boxes. I know that when I've taught at different universities and I won't name names, they're like, why are the students wanting to go into film suddenly? You're teaching chemistry. We don't understand this. Like, you know, kind of accusatory. <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, how it's, it's like they say that a lot, so many kids are ambidextrous and yeah. that, that, we're f that we push kids to be right-handed. And, and because it's like, well, it's just easier for us if you're in a category that I understand rather yeah, than like, what exactly. if you could do both? Speaking of Da Vinci. So, I think if we moved away from that and just 
like if companies like NASA is already doing it, sounds like really encourage people to develop both sides. I think we would just, we would just like our creative, our creative, you know, our artists, our writers, and our scientists would just move much, much faster. Mm, yeah. What, how does chemistry help you with story when you're writing? I had to learn how to do things linearly mm. when I learned chemistry because I'm not naturally a linear person. So I had to create steps for myself and how to like solve each problem and story is structured in a very linear fashion. Yeah. yeah. So, that makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Because, like that's, you know, when, when we came out of UCLA, I was like, I, I feel like I intuitively understand story and I understand all these tools, but I'm still falling apart on structure and I don't know why. And it wasn't until I broke it down and created steps, which is now what we teach, that it's like, oh, this just demystified the whole thing and it's so useful. Let's share it with other people. So I remember you doing that. You would say, I watched a movie and I broke it down into steps. I watched a movie mm -hmm. and I broke it down into steps. Then I aligned them with my script. And I thought, yeah. oh, that's so smart. Find movies that are similar and break them down. Yeah. Yeah, I recommend that all the time. Like, just reverse engineer the outline from what you're watching, and it'll give you the story. Yeah. So, that's that's really and that's cool. That's the part we hate, actually, as creative. Oh yeah. Outlining. We're like, no, not outlining, and they're like, we're gonna do six weeks on outlining because it's yep. so important. It's so important. <laughs> Every time I try to jump ahead without doing the foundational work, I end up hoist by my own petard. Like, I just it always bites me in the butt, and. And I have every class we teach people try, they're like, oh, I'm just going to skip this step or I don't want to have to do this. Or do we really have to do this part of the homework? I'm like, yes, you do. I promise you it's going to make your pages so much easier and more joyful to write. If you know I what think the we have an idea when we're writing a story, we know what our story is, but we haven't brought it to our conscious. And until we actually do that outline, it's not in our conscious mind and that's why mm. we lost it's not yes. it's not being it's not being being brought from our subconscious to our conscious yeah i think that's a really good point but it's painful it's it really is painful, painful. <laughs> well it's forcing you to not just play it by ear it's mm -hmm. forcing you to like think about what all these elements are and where where the story turns are in a way that's like yes you can still leave something up to being dis to discovery in the process but you can't you can't just sort of leave it to chance. Like, and I, people, I have people that tell me like, I just sit down and start writing and I let it take me where it's going to go. And I'm like, good luck with that. That, 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 that's a great basic, like, remember Richard used to say the snowplow or how is it? Hal Ackerman that used to say snowplow, you know, where you just are writing and writing and writing and see where it gives you. But at the end of the day, if you write a script that way, you're going to nine times out of 10, I'm sure there's exceptions, but you're going to end up cutting so many pages that you just slaved over you know, I used to think novelists could do that, that just stream of conscious, but they can't either. They go yeah. through and they have to cut most of it out too. Yeah. I used to try to write like that when I was, so I was like you, writing was my thing when I was little and I would sit, I would wake up on weekend mornings at like six, seven, eight years old and, and start writing in my little pad of paper and write these stories. And those just because you're little, you know, and they did just flow. And so I thought, oh, that's what it is. That's how you do this. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until later I realized no you need a foundation you need a structure and I actually did write a novel based on using the structure that we teach for screenplays and it's like oh this stuff is universal it's the same thing yeah I started before UCLA I was doing novels and mm. then when I did screenwriting it made my novels much better <laughs> because they were much more structured yes. and it made me be able to write them much faster yes but um I co-wrote the book with um, Lou Hunter, who's chair emeritus of UCLA screenwriting. And it was 22 Oscar winning screen uh, writers. They share their secrets. So, and it ended up being 650 pages. And he had it, it took him 20 years because you only have two Oscar winners a year, right? And he mm. would grab here and there. He had to kind of know them to get a proper interview because these interviews were like six hours long. Wow. So, and I really trimmed them down at 650 pages. If I hadn't trimmed it, it would have been double. <laughs> oh my goodness. How did you connect with him at, while you were at school? Okay, so I was actually in graduate school for organic chemistry. And my mom, oh, she really didn't care if I went into science or writing, you know? 
So she gave me a Lincoln Journal Star article on Lou Hunter and the work that he was doing here to try and stop. We had a meth problem in his town, like his area of Nebraska. And she said, he's a screenwriter. And she knew that that's what I wanted to get into next. And she said, he has writer's retreats. So I remember my uh, boyfriend at the time said, I think that that is a low ROI, return on investment. And he could not have been more wrong because, and I kept thinking about that. I was like, cause I don't remember how much it costs a couple grand, I think to take his writer's retreat, but you like stayed at his Victorian mm-hmm. house, all meals are paid. And then you have him just UCLA. He was then active at UCLA professor chair teaching you screenwriting for the first time ever. And I knocked out my first script and I went back to graduate school and I actually took a master's in organic chemistry. I told them, I go, I, and I had a year left. So I was like, I'm going to Los Angeles. I'm going to take a master's. I'm done. So my advisor actually was really mad at me <laughs> in chemistry. And I moved to LA. I hadn't gotten into UCLA or anything yet, but I moved to LA determined. And I even remember, so we did like uh, the night classes together, right? Mm-hmm, so I was mm-hmm. going to take every UCLA class I could. Even at that time, I was taking continuing studies, television writing too. Oh, wow. So I was taking every night class I could. I even got a job on the UCLA campus so I could be right there. I remember so that. I was working in uh, environmental health. And um, I, uh, when I applied to their MFA program, I remember I was interviewed by Richard Walter, and he said, where else did you apply? And I was like, I don't apply anywhere else. And he was like, oh, why did you apply anywhere else? And I'm like, because I came here to go to UCLA. It was so, like, I was so focused, maybe. Like, you know, for me, like, that, that was my focus for the first time ever. And he wow. thought it was funny. He goes, you didn't apply anywhere else? I'm like, why would I go anywhere else? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't apply anywhere else either, actually. And I'm, I same thing. I moved here to go to UCLA. So, yeah, determination. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's huge. Tell me about Once in a Lou Moon. It was his retirement party documentary. Oh. So even though he had all of these interviews, because all of the interviews that are in his book, and it's everyone from Oliver Stone, Francis Ford Coppola went to school with him at the same time. He's actually very nice, I can say, because I had to like interact via email to get permissions and stuff for this book, and he was wow. one of the friendliest. Um, Alexander Payne is in it because he's a UCLA alum. Billy Wilder came. I don't, do not know how Lou got Billy Wilder. Wow. But he got Billy Wilder, and then um, it just goes on and on and on. He And he did most of the interviews in his 434 classes. And 434 is the basic screenwriting class for the MFA program at UCLA. So he would have them come in and he would do the full interview. Well, the classes normally lasted, what, three, four hours? They went over. These would go on for like six hours and they would tape them. So, and I think some of this went back 20 years ago, right? So some of it's like film. Yeah. Peppery. Um, But so when they made Once in a Lou Moon, it was an homage to Lou and it had clips from some of these interviews. A new documentary is going to come out to go along with the book, which is just focusing on these uh, Oscar winners. Wow. Okay. So, because yeah, Lou's 434 book is like the big book that he's known for. You know, like if you go on Amazon and you put in Lou Hunter, that's what pops up. Honestly, I read that book and that is one of the things that like pushed me to take his, um, his writer's workshop. And yeah, it was all a domino effect. I still think of that return on investment. If I hadn't taken his writer's workshop, then I wouldn't have been determined to go to Los Angeles, never in a million years. And that was really daunting when I moved there. I don't know where, where did you move from? I moved from Colorado. Colorado, yeah. yeah. I knew Colorado. I don't know if it was daunting for you. It was really daunting for me. It took me two years to really adjust to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that I was there and stayed focused was UCLA. I had like this this pot this at the end of the rainbow that I was like after. I love so that. everything I did was was revolving around that. And mm-hmm. honestly, I can say even here now in COVID, many of the friends that I'm Zooming with that we're sharing at UCLA, like, you know, same as you, everyone yeah. I'm still in contact with that became like the greatest friends of my life I met at UCLA. I love that. Yeah, I'm still... I'm still in contact with quite a few people. And, and obviously we started our Italian writing retreats 
with, you know, with Paul Chitlick and Neil Landau and like, you know, pulling from our favorite, some of our favorite uh, UCLA professors and, you know, bringing them to Italy with us. And so it's like that whole world, the world of everything we do now is, be, wouldn't have happened without UCLA. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I think the return on investment was pretty high. <laughs> I know. Right. That guy did not know what he was talking about. <laughs> I'm like, it just keeps on giving. Yeah. Yeah. When is this new book? Is it book out yet? When is it coming out? No, it'll be out in March. I just got, it went through, so I did a, the first edit, shaved it down to 650 pages. I just got this week the edit from the publisher. So I have to go through and like look at all of their comments and everything. Mm. So it'll be out in March. Um, it will be paperback. And uh, when I started doing it, I was really, really embedded in a lot of work at the time. So I was doing it late, late at night. But it became my obsession because the interviews were so good. Yeah. And you don't always think of writers as being very good at speaking. And you can see like some like Coppola was really good at speaking because he's a director too. So he has to communicate his ideas, you know. So he was like a phenomenal speaker in that book. Just so good at expressing himself. Is there, you know, a nugget or a tidbit that one of them put out that that's they say is their key to writing or anything like that that you got while you were working on the book? There's one thing that I always think about because because I am a chemist, I get pulled in like many directions to teach here, teach there, teach there. Sometimes I take on too much and my writing suffers because I just don't have the time to balance it. So I have to say no. I have to learn to say no so that I have time for writing. And the one thing that they said, and he actually wasn't interviewed in the book. It was Lou Hunter's friend. It was Ray Bradbury. He said, I have known brilliant writers, writers who are far better than me. And they gave up and they didn't become writers. And he goes, and I knew writers who were horrible, awful writers, but they were absolutely determined. And they are, that is their uh, bread and butter now. They are making it as a writer. Wow. So I, what I got, and this kind of goes into like the Italian, uh, I think, mindset, is that writing is a craft. So mm -hmm. if, you don't, if you're not using it, you're losing it. Yes. And that it's, you know, we've talked before with the, about this in L.A., that here it's just, it is a game of attrition. It's, it, talent is part of it, but it's just the determination to stick it out and suffer through, you know, all the craziness that comes with living in LA and banging your head against the wall, trying to get your scripts read or, you know, out well, there. there were, I will say there were like, I, I, I don't mind saying who I can remember a few, like Oliver Stone, Ted Talley, Coppola. They all said that they couldn't live in Los Angeles because there's too many voices that wow. interfere with their writing. Interesting. And Ted Talley, who did Silence of the Lambs, said he couldn't live in New York either. He said everyone in his apartment building is talking about this and that and all his creativities. And he's like, I need to live next door to an attorney so I can write an attorney. I need regular people around me so I can write about regular people. Interesting. So a lot of them actually said that they prefer, they're like, once you have your agent, get out of Los Angeles. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, because like I've I've talked to young writers who are trying to break in and they're living somewhere else. And I'm like, you won't unless you're living here. Like you've got to be in here to make those connections, break through. But yes. Yeah, Oliver Stone said he had to he has to be in Paris most of the time. Ugh, poor he's him. Like, That's so, so suffering. I know, I know. Um he said there's too many there's too many distractions in Los Angeles. There are. There. A lot of distractions I mean, I feel like there's some distractions in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> just a few <laughs> but man it would be amazing I, I mean that's to have the freedom to live wherever you want to live just because it makes your heart happy that's yeah. the ultimate writer goal and, I think and so they just fly in and they all talked about how Faulkner when they, he said can I do this from home and they're like yeah sure go home they thought he would go to his studio apartment and he went back to Mississippi because he just couldn't he's like I can't wait here that, knowing what I know about him, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Got to be around those rhythms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where Where else would you live? I mean, would you Would you stay in Nebraska? Would you go back to Nebraska, or would you? Well, I always think about these writers saying this. I wouldn't stay in Nebraska, no. But when I, it is true, 
I think there's stories, this is going to sound like really uh, mystical thinking, but I think there's stories that are just around. There is a writer in there, uh, Billy Joel Rubin. He did Ghost. Um, When I go into like older cities, I feel more stories around me and more stories are coming to me. Mm. And I do think that when stories uh, come to us, they're not necessarily coming from us. Yeah. So I think somebody's gifting them to us. You know, so, and we're, we might be like sharing someone else's story or a story that's just floating around out there. Yes. So I do think that there are certain places that have more stories embedded in them. And I think in Los Angeles, there is a lot of white noise. That makes sense. And I I do feel like when, you know, you know, when you're onto something, because it feels like you're just channeling the writing. It doesn't feel like it's coming from your own brain. Yeah, so there's many times through you back and you're like, who wrote this? Oh, I did. I remember writing this. I wrote this. Hey, this is, I love, that's my favorite when you write something because you're in that zone and then you kind of put it aside and you come back a couple days or weeks or whatever later and you read it and you're like, this is really good. Like, and it almost, it's like you're commenting on someone else's writing. It's not like, it's not like an ego thing. Like, I'm so amazing. It's just like, wow, this is actually really, I didn't remember even doing this, but it's good. But you're right. I don't ever think of it as an ego thing when I think something's really good because I'm like, who gifted me this story? I love that. <laughs> so what about your own novels and like your own, what do you, are you, do you get more joy out of screenwriting or novels or what's, the, how do you? I like decide? both. Um, I guess with what's going on, I kind of moved away from screenwriting a little bit and I got into playwriting and novels hmm. and playwriting was really hard. It may be the hardest for me, at least of the three. But I'm glad that I learned it because it taught me to simplify story. So it was like the third, you know, craft that I needed to learn so that I could do every, all the other two better. Well, and I mean, you're no slouch. Like you've got Sundance Lab, correct? I was actually just asked to, I didn't do it. I was asked to submit for it. Okay. I mean, that's, you already have to get to a certain level to be noticed for that. Um, and you, you won the Sloan Award? I did. And that was like science and screenwriting combined. Uh, okay. That was a nice um, opportunity for me personally because I did it on Jonas Salk. And his entire family lives in La Jolla. So I oh. went out to La Jolla and interviewed his entire family. And wow. they're so nice. Oh. And you know what? They're transcendental meditators. So they would believe that stories are gifted as well. <laughs> I love that. I love that you got to write a script about a scientist and it won a science com- science script competition. Yeah, it was, I met his best friend who was head of the Salk Institute. Everyone around him was just really, they were really good people. I love it. And you won the Goldwyn as well, right? Yeah. And that was on a different script. Um, that would have been a script that was uh, completely fiction. And um it was on a kind of a black comedy on a family. Okay. That's so see again, back to this whole thing about pigeonholing people and categorizing, you must be left-handed or right-handed. You must be a scientist or an artist. Like you're a different kinds of writer, you know, some people are like, Oh, you can only write comedy or you can only write drama. And it's like, well, and I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. I even think of that with actors. Um, So Bill Goldman was in the book and he was interviewed and he said something that stuck with me too. He said he doesn't understand why comedies aren't uh, viewed with more, like they're viewed as lesser than in a way uh, than other mediums. He thinks that they're just as important. And he said, and even at UCLA, I got in trouble for this. I love Adam Sandler. So, and I got in trouble for loving Adam Sandler, but even Lou Hunter was like, really? And I was like, yeah, I think his movies are brilliant. And uh, Bill Goldman said the same thing. He said, I love Adam Sandler. This actor is phenomenal. His movies are good. They're funny. But he's one who I think got pigeonholed. Because when I see him do like Punch Drunk Love, I think his acting is phenomenal. Did you see Uncut Gems? I started to. It was a little too heavy for me in that moment. But I haven't seen it, but I've heard the same. But, but everyone's saying it's like he's phenomenal. But I, I love that. I think anytime you take a comedic actor and drop them into a serious role, that's when you get like such gold. Like look at, you know, Barry, that kind of thing. Yeah. Where you take, you're taking a, an actor known for comedy and dropping him into drama. And oh, I read Apatow's book on, you know, where he was interviewing and Adam Sandler was in there. And he said that when Saturday Night Live asked him on, 
he almost turned it down because he knew he had more range and he'd be pigeonholed. And he was. Wow. Yeah. And so when I see him in serious roles, I'm like, he is Oscar material, actually. Mm. Maybe, uh, maybe that'll start, maybe he'll start getting more stuff now that people have seen because Uncut Gems just definitely like caused a lot of waves. And so yeah. I think people look at him a little differently. But there's like these movements also, you know how for a long time we didn't have a lot of female comedians and now you turn mm -hmm. on Netflix, it's all female comedians. So I'm hoping it'll allow a lot of actors that have this range, yeah. a lot of writers who have this range, not to get pigeonholed. All of the, all of the Oscar winners in the book seem to have share this belief, which was kind of nice. I th also think that when you write a story, you're never writing it for the fame. You're never writing it for the money. You're writing it to share a good story with people. So you don't really care if you make money off of it. You know, you don't care if, uh, if people know who you are. If you, people, if you wanted people to know who you were, you might go into acting, not writing. <laughs> that mm -hmm. was best, you know? And so it, then, then you're writing for a higher purpose and it's going to resonate naturally with mm -hmm. a group of people because you're picking up on the collective unconscious better. I love that. I had uh, my friend Perez Owino on last time and she was talking about, um, she has these two categories. She, she has legacy scripts that she's writing that are the, the legacy she wants to leave behind that are all passion projects. And then she has the commercial ones that she gets hired to do and she does those. And she said that, that every time she's dug in and really done a legacy project, something from her heart, those are the things that end up being the most successful because she did it for herself. She did it for a higher purpose. She did it because it was like a resonant, important story. And it's like, well, of course, those are the ones that are the most appealing to the audience. Yeah. Alan Ball said when he, he was always a television writer and he says in the book, he was interviewed in the book. He said that he told his agent he wanted to write a movie, his first ever movie. And his agent said, what do you want to write? Well, he was pitching really commercial things to his agent because he thought American Beauty, which is the first one that he thought that would never be it. When he finally pitched American Beauty, the agent's like, I can clearly see you have the most passion for this. That's the one you should write. And he kind of left like, oh, I, know. I thought, no way. But he wrote it. And when he turned it into the agent, the agent knew that they had something golden and so they protected it. They wouldn't like send it out to every agency. They created kind of like an aura of secrecy around it. And that made everyone want it. Oh, interesting. I know. So it was Spielberg actually who got it. Only very few people in Hollywood got the script. And Spielberg said preempt, which meant just outbid everyone. Dang. His first ever. And he said uh, he thought it was the least likely to sell. But it, because he had the most invested in it personally. And yeah. he, I think he's still with his agent. He loves his agent. His agent can always, like, read what his passion projects are. Oh, man. Do you have an agent? Um, okay, I have an agent, but I haven't checked in with him for a while. <laughs> well, have you sold anything? Have you ever sold a script? Um, you know, I've done a lot of write for hires. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so, and it's not, again, it's not like my passion project, but I can mm -hmm. do it. So, um, I've done like things where people have their passion that they want me to write and I'll write it for them. Yeah. I've done a few of those too. It's just like, okay, but I don't have an agent. So, you know, I really, to get your, um, to get your, your voice out there, you don't need necessarily an agent. You just need someone who will push for you because it's really hard. I will say that people who self-promote do tend to get mm -hmm. where they want. And it's hard as a writer because most writers are shy and they're not into self-promotion. Yeah. So as long as you have someone who's in your corner, who's really willing to push for you, it doesn't matter who they are. They could be just a friend who knows a studio uh, intern. And that can get your uh, material made. I know someone after UCLA who, uh, just to save money, moved back in with their parents, was writing in their basement. And within like three years, they very quietly were show running because wow. they just knocked out so much material. Having material is so much more important, I think, than yes. your representation. Yeah, there's that whole, you know, the what else you got question. Yeah, exactly. like, yeah. so many. I, I work with a lot of writers that are like, well, I have this one script. I'm going to go get an agent now. And I'm like, wait, write mm -hmm. a few more things. Got to get some other add, stuff. They want to see the whole portfolio. Yeah. 
Yeah. And your writing will improve and you'll get to go back to that first thing that you thought was great and you'll see flaws that you didn't see before. And then it'll be, that'll be a better script. I know. I think about that too with Alan Ball, because that was his first movie script, but he'd done so much television and television is so structured. So yes. it wasn't really, you know, his first script. He'd been around for a while. So you need yeah. to how to write it. I was going to say Six Feet Under, but I think that came after American Beauty. But he said he gave yeah, a, 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 book he a whole bunch of TV shows that he was on. Yeah, he's amazing. Was there any other writer whose comment like surprised you or like caught you off guard? He wrote The Usual Suspects. And the one thing that he said, he do, so he he's not actually in the, there would have been 23, but he didn't want to be in the book. I'm not sure why, but um, because it was a great interview. And he gave it actually at CineQuest with Lou Hunter. So it was in front of a lot of people. Yeah. The thing that he said about the usual suspects that I wanted to everyone, this reason I really wanted his interview in there, is he said that that script went around Hollywood 10 years earlier. The same exact script. And every studio, every agent, everyone turned it down. For some reason, 10 years later, everyone wanted it. He's like, we couldn't get the phone to quit ringing 10 years later. The same exact script. And I thought that was a really important story for writers. Yes. Again, not just like the Ray Ray Bradbury says, to not give up. Yeah. And they haven't changed anything. He wrote that whole script in like one week and he hadn't changed (sighs) anything. Sometimes it's just like, it's like it lines up with the zeitgeist or something. And it's like the time is right. And that's the story that needs to come out now. And it just, things align. And sometimes I think people will be told things. Writers will be told things by producers, maybe even their agent. But no, I even was told this when I graduated from UCLA, I was told not to write a movie on climate change. (laughs) I think they knew that I would be the type to write a movie on climate change. I totally would. Cause I was like, Oh, okay. Scratch that one off my list. And then all of these movies on climate change are coming out right now. And I thought, you know what? I not only believe in the collective unconscious, but I think that we can sense it 10 years in advance. Mm. So I think that we can sense, like we have it, if we're really tuned into it and if we trust our gut, we can sense things that are going to be hot in another 10 years. That's interesting. I'm wondering, what do you, any, any insights of what you think is going to be the next the 10 years from now? Um... <laughs> Well, I do think that there's going to be a lot that will be written about now, unfortunately, about, I looked at like what's trending on Netflix, you know, especially when we were under quarantine. I think that there's going to be a lot that's written about on, uh, we're going to see a lot of outbreaks that are mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But there's all, also a lot of things that I can see. And I'm already seeing the movies trend, like uh, social media is making people very lonely, strangely. Yeah. Yeah, because it should connect them, but it's giving them FOMO or yeah. it's making them feel, you know, like they should. It's give, it gives people a false sense of what life is, kind of a disconnect. Mm. So we're already starting to see movies on this. So you can kind of you just look at social changes and you can kind of predict what yeah. what's bothering you is usually what's bothering everyone. That's true. Yeah. You're not the only one with that concern. <laughs> yes. You might be the only one who's saying it. But if you put it in your script, everyone's going to be like, oh, I've been thinking that. Right, right. (laughs) Well, so are there, is there any, to wrap up about the book, is there any one one interview that you read where you just really like your favorite one that you like resonated with that writer and was like, that's like, that's my soul, soul sister or soul brother writer or anything like that? So um, Bruce Joel Rubin, who did Ghost, I think I said Billy Joel, sorry. Bruce Joel Rubin, who did Ghost, he uh, he actually went and uh, spent time with the Dalai Lama. And so he was probably the most spiritual. He had the most spiritual take on writing. He even had one, when we were talking about how we did hire for rights. He said that he wasn't going to do a right for hire because he didn't like the material at all. And then he was meditating and he heard a voice that said, do it. And that movie paid for his kid's college. Wow. So he said that even sometimes when we're not writing things that are coming to us from wherever, uh, the ephemeral, you still need to write it because Mm -hmm. it is going to help you in some aspect of your life. That's amazing. Yes. I just did one of those. So I'm, I'm waiting to see if it, if it does that. Yeah. He, he said he, like, he never would have, he, he didn't, he didn't feel like he was the best one for the material but they felt like he was. And then he knew it was going to be a, a blockbuster. 
So he, um, and it did, he's like, it, it kept us financially clear. So I could write, you know, then the things that might take 10 years to actually pick up. Yeah. The things you love. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think, um, after all that, what do you think are like the essential ingredients for a script? So, um, all of the writers, every single one of the Oscar winners in that book read constantly, Mm. you know? And that is one nice thing that's happened this year is books and reading has really gone on the uptick, you know, like mm-hmm. puzzles have. So, yeah. so again, they're really, really well read. Um, and they also are constantly writing. Even um, Billy Wilder, who, you know, moved more into directing, said that he would constantly be writing, even if it was just things that he would tuck into a desk drawer. Hmm. So... Um, I noticed these through lines. I noticed that they're always, always writing something, even if it's just a diary. Yeah. They're writing. They're always reading and um, they're never doing it for, they're never doing their, the stories that come to them. They're never doing it thinking, oh, the story is going to be a blockbuster. I'm going to make a million bucks or whatever. Mm. That's, that's great. I love it. And then they're stunned when it does. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, Bruce Joel Rubin said something really interesting, too. So he won the Oscar for Ghosts. And then he said that he went to Universal and then he saw a movie at the AMC, at, you know, the Universal Park with his son. And they were having ice cream and he just looked so sad. And they just seen the Oscar winner for that year. And his son said, Dad, what's wrong? What's, why are you so sad? And he goes, I just wish that I could write an Oscar winner. And he goes, Dad, you did last year. And he said, so those moments that you think are so important, these awards... They are nothing. It's the process. It's completely the process. Yeah. You forget about winning the award. He's like, I had only been a year. And I was already like wanting to win an Oscar, forgetting that I'd already won an Oscar. Oh my God. May we all be so lucky to win an Oscar and and then forget that we did it and want to do it again. Yeah. So when you (laughs) think, even though these tent poles in writing are so important, tent poles in life are so important. Yeah. That's a great perspective. Well, so what's next for you? Um, so I have to go through the edits on the naked screenwriting again, but I am doing a script and a novel right now. So, and then I'm teaching chemistry online. Amazing. Keeping yourself busy. So I always like to wrap these up by like asking what, if you could, looking at where you've, where you started and where you've gotten to, if you could go back and tell your 13 year old self something what would you what would you want her to know about your journey you know I really think if I had pursued writing when I was 13 like when I wanted to I mean I'm glad I have the chemistry background because it gives me like something else but I think I should have done a double major I think if I had pursued Mm -hmm. writing all along I would have moved much faster so Mm -hmm. I think that our if you have an instinct that young that you want to be a writer or you want to be an archaeologist, whatever you want to be that young, you should follow it because you you're latching onto it that young, you know? Yes, I I totally agree with that. And I feel like that's been a through line in, in a lot of these talks is be bold, follow your dream when, you know, don't wait to follow your dream. Don't wait for the, the safety net of like, you know, you, you exactly what you're saying. You could have done a double major and then you would have had that. I wish I had come back. You know, I graduated with a BA in English and writing. And then I was like, oh, but I haven't been given permission, but no one's tapped me on the shoulder and said, you are the writer. So I went and did corporate jobs and I did marketing department jobs. And I tried to be creative in a corporate setting for 10 years before I finally was like, this is dumb. I'm going to take a chance and move back to LA. And yeah, yeah. those jobs take all of your time. Um, I know the, um, I know many, many writers, David Sedaris. um, They have had many, many jobs and that's really important for the writing to have all of this background. I just think it's important that you don't stay home and you know, Mm -hmm. you're out there like experiencing life. And that you do have a lot of different experiences because it all goes into your writing. But it's also important that you have a structure where you just like buckle down and write. Because like I said, I think way more important than an agent is your portfolio of writing. Mm. Well, I think that's, I like that. And it's, it's 
that you that you go out and have a life because you know you were supposed to write what you know you have to know things first yeah. and they can't yeah. just be sitting and watching i mean sitting and watching tv yes because we're we're consuming our peers work and and educating ourselves and going okay that's the level i want to be at or i want to write a spec script for that show but yeah get out have life have experiences otherwise yeah. you're going to only write shows about people who sit and watch tv Exactly. I'm, I'm thinking about some of the writers who said they had to get out of LA. They needed to have a normal life mm. and a normal yeah. marriage and a normal, so that they could write about what was around them. Otherwise yeah. no one could relate to their characters because LA is pretty insular. Yes. Yes. Otherwise you're going to have a story about trying to make it in LA, which yeah. <laughs> we, we can only tolerate so many of those in any given period of time. And like, usually they're, you know, you got your swimming with sharks and then you've got your pretty woman and then you've got your, you know, it's like, yeah, only so often do we want those stories. Yeah, I would say 90%, it's a normal human life. And so you have yeah. to live one to understand it. Yes, I think that's a great point. Did oh, you thank you. You know, I can say when I read the book, it put me into the zone to write more, write more, write more, write more. Because yeah. they were all saying the same thing. Like that Bradbury quote, it's too bad he wasn't, he was interviewed at UCLA, but he wasn't like properly interviewed in the book where he's like, I know the worst writer in the world and they live in Bel Air because they never gave up. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yes. There is a thing to watching people fail upwards when you know you have more talent. That's really frustrating, but yeah, it's a game of attrition and, and, and I think with it. my students too, I'll see students who are like not very good at chemistry, but they'll get the A because they just keep asking question after question. They're not gonna give up. Mm. And then I'll have some students who are like really gifted at chemistry, but they'll get the C because they never go the extra mile because it's so easy for them. Interesting. So I would think, I actually think that everything that we do, uh, everything that we learn is a craft. You've got to do it over and over and over again and then it becomes seamless. 10,000 hours, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's what they say. I can say that I'm now on social media when I have time, I'm putting in quotes here and there and I can pretty much close my eyes and point to a page and pull a quote. I mean, I sometimes I'm doing it from the 650 page PDF on my phone to quickly put a quote on social media. And I'm like, that one works because every quote works. These writers are so good at expressing themselves. What's the, what's that social media account? What should we well, follow? Screenwriting. There's naked screenwriting on Instagram, naked screenwriting on Facebook, naked screenwriting on, uh, now there's a website too. Okay, so perfect. I, I made a loose website for it too. So you can pre-order the book right now and you can see a lot of the quotes and I don't even have to worry with 650 pages that I'm putting like the meat out there. Cause I'm just randomly pulling them. Like, oh, oh yeah. This is such good advice. That's awesome. Yeah. When you're reading it, if you just read a little bit every day, it makes you want to write. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love it. I'm, I'm already, I'm inspired and I'm looking forward to it. There is one more thing that I re remember that I wanted to say okay. because I was just pulling a quote just before this podcast. And it was one thing that I, every single writer in that book had that I think every writer has, they had such doubts. Mm. So every single writer, even when they've made it, even Oliver Stone after it, like one of the students in the class is like, well, you can do anything now. And he's like, you are giving me way too much credit. I can't do anything. I have to make this movie so that I can make the movie that's close to my heart. And yeah. he's like, and I have to toggle them. So yeah. he, no, I'm not making the movies that are close to my heart whenever I want. I'm doing a studio movie. Then I'm doing the movie that's close to my heart. Coppola said the same thing. He said he thought he was such a horrible writer and it devastated him that he went into directing. Wow. And then since Lou went to school with him at the same time, he said everyone was trying to get their script in the hands of Coppola to be rewritten. They were like, we all knew he was a phenomenal writer, but he didn't. Oh my God, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like doubts on your own talent, I mean, that's a good way to stay humble and make sure that you actually are pushing yourself in your craft, unlike your students that get the C's, like yeah, they're not pushing themselves. He says it too. He's like, as soon as I see a really talented writer come through and they're cocky, I know they're not going to have a long career. No. He's like, you've got to have doubt. Doubt drives you. Doubt drives you. I love that. And I mean, I feel like in every script as well, and I, every class I have, usually around session three, I give a lecture about, you will become convinced shortly that this script is the worst idea you've ever had. 
and that it's terrible and that you should run screaming and that you should write that other script over there and said that you just thought of that seems like a really good idea. I promise you it's part of the process to think that it that what you're doing is terrible. Stick with it. See it through. You started writing this for a reason. You were called to like do this story for a reason. Get and then they, and they they do. They inevitably get through the like doubt slump and then they're, you know, they're really happy with what they have, but I feel like that doubt is part of the process. I also have noticed as a writer myself, when I write something and I don't want those scenes to be read in class and I'm so embarrassed, those are the scenes that get the most applause because I'm showing the most vulnerability. Ah, yes. So that's when you really get down to your soul. Yes. When you When you're like, don't want to share it, you've hit something raw. Interesting. Yes. I love that. That's a great uh, point of wisdom. <laughs> It is. It's because it's, I mean, every, every script we write is, is our soul on the paper, which is why it's so painful when they get rejected, but it's, yeah. all, it's therapy. It's us. It's our heart and soul on the page. And yeah. And many of them said, so, but yeah, back to that usual suspects, many of them got rejected many, many times. Like every single Oscar winner was like, you do not know how many, you guys think that it was so easy for us. Cause we're sitting here now, but you do not know how many times we heard the word. No. Wow. Yeah. That's good to hear because, you know, I mean, even with like Harry Potter, or the, the JK Rowling story that the, she got a hundred no's before someone decided to publish. And that's actually the typical story. Yeah. So we just know that one because she shared it, but that's right. typical. It was the same with Stephen King. Yeah. So I, it, it's the same with most of the screenwriters. Yeah. And it's good to know, to reframe it that way in that it's a game, you know, it's not personal. It's not, they're not saying, I hate you. They're saying that, that, that thing isn't for them right now. In 10 years, it could be the usual suspects. Yeah, that's the other thing that's important to keep in mind is you shouldn't ever chuck it, which was what Stephen King did with Carrie. You shouldn't ever chuck it in the waste bin because just because it's not resonating with those people then doesn't mean it won't in three years. Next time on Hearthside Salons, visual artist and illustrator Lauren Ulver has always been interested in synchronicity, connection, and then the Rorschach test-like effect an image can have on a viewer. Working steadily on movie posters and commercial client work, she's taken her pen and ink and watercolor style to produce an astrobotanical deck of tarot cards that reinterpret traditional symbology with birds, animals, herbs, and historical figures. We'll talk about finding a path with art. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well.